Now, as we turn our attention to this week, uh, we are finishing our series in Nehemiah. Finally, uh, we are getting out of the exile today. Nehemiah 13, 29 through 31, if you have your Bibles. This is the 37th and, Lord willing, final sermon in our series. So just to recap, for those of you who have been along with us this whole journey, uh, we did 13 sermons in Ezra starting in January of 2022. We did one sermon in Haggai, and now we have done 23 sermons in Nehemiah. So you guys know more about this section of the Bible than probably 90% of the people uh, that are sitting in pews on a Sunday, because Ezra and Nehemiah is not a book that we normally study. But It has blessed me, uh, and I hope that it's blessed you as well. The end of a book is always kind of bittersweet for me, uh, but I'm excited for what's next. Next week, we're going to start a uh, topical series on depression. Uh, So I think it's a good series for uh, really anybody, and especially if you know somebody in your life that is struggling, invite them to come with you. We're going to look at what the Bible says about that topic. Now, before we jump in and uh, pray, I want to give you a little overview of where we're going. We're going to look mainly at verse 31, that final uh, verse. It is the prayer of Nehemiah, and I think it's the prayer of everybody. Uh, Whether you're a Christian or not, I think that you want what Nehemiah says in verse 31. But the problem with Nehemiah and the problem with us is we often go about getting that in the wrong way. And so Jesus comes along. And he tells us how to get it right. This is really a continuation of last week's sermon where we looked at the difference in the law and the gospel. We're going to look at the difference in the law and the gospel again, but from a different angle. So let me pray for us, and then we will jump in. Father God, thank you so much for all the people who are before me on this day. I do not believe that it is an accident. I think every single one of them are here. And God, we are weary and we are tired from this world. There are standards that we do not measure up to. And if we're honest, God, we do not deserve your favor we're kind of worried that you might not be our God, but that you might be our enemy. Lord, would you remind us, would you soothe our souls, comfort our souls to know that we do have favor with you, that you're not just our God, but you are our Father because of the favor that was earned on our behalf through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that that truth would be soothing to the people in this room who need it the most. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. So as we jump in, let's look at the three parts of this prayer. The first part is remember me. The full prayer is remember me, my God, with favor. And the first part of that is remember me. And this is something that we all must want. We want God to remember us. Otherwise, what hope do we have? We have no hope. We are like a kid who's going to the store with their parents. We hope that our parents remember us before they leave Walmart because otherwise it's going to be a long walk home. Our only hope is that God would remember us. I was reading a psychologist this week, and uh, he was talking about uh, children and the the game that we all play with children. Blakely and I are really into this game right now. It's the game of peekaboo. It is hilarious to do it with a baby, and babies think it's so funny. All you got to do is put your hands in front of your face, and you go, peekaboo, and they go, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Well, at least that's what I thought babies were thinking until I read this psychologist. Now, how psychologists know, I have no idea. It's like when people tell you what dogs are thinking. I'm like, I don't believe you. I don't really know if you know that or not. But this psychologist was, was very certain that this is what's going on when you're playing peekaboo. The baby is learning the difference between life and death because they see their parents as the thing that keeps them alive. And when daddy does this or mommy does this, it's not that mommy and daddy are hiding behind their hands. Mommy and daddy have ceased to exist in that moment. Death. And so you can imagine when you think all is gone, all hope is lost, and the hands go and mommy and daddy are back, it's going to make you laugh because life has returned. 
Now, I tell you all that because it ruins peekaboo for me, and I hope it does for you as well. <laughs> like torturing my child, and I didn't even know it. I thought we were just playing a game. But the idea behind that is what? Is I want mommy and daddy to remember me, because that is my only source of life. And as we grow up, we learn this in different ways, and we no longer are scared of peekaboo, but we certainly want God to remember us. Every single one of us. And you might not call it God. You might call it the force or the vibes in the universe. 99.9% of people would agree that there is some kind of force moving in this universe. They might call it karma. Or they might know that it is the God of this universe. But whatever they call it, they believe it. There's only a very small percentage of people who are truly nihilist. They truly believe that there's no meaning, that everything's an accident, and none of this really matters. Uh, Taylor and I, we just went and watched Super Mario Bros because and we didn't go with a kid. We just went because we are children at heart. We love cartoons. And uh, there's this little nihilist star uh, in the movie that's just hilarious to me because uh, he's just it, it's, it's so much of what people think they are when they call themselves atheists. But the star shows you that you're really not that because the star just can't wait to die. It's not worried about anything. It's just there's no meaning to anything. And, uh, you know, one of the birds that's also in jail cries out, says, life is depressing enough without you. And I just, I just love that scene because it is so true. The only hope that we have is that God or whatever's in charge of this whole thing would be looking out for us. What other hope do we have in the face of death? We want God to remember us. Here's an example of it in Scripture. 1 Samuel 25, 30-32. Abigail, talking to what would become King David, says this, When the Lord does for my Lord all the good He promised you and appoints you ruler over Israel, there will not be remorse or troubled conscience for my Lord. Because of needless bloodshed or my Lord's revenge. And when the Lord does good things for my Lord, may you remember me, your servant. Then David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you to meet me today. In other words, she's saying, would you remember me when God gives you favor? Would you remember me? It's the same thing I used to say to all my youth students who thought they were going to make it in professional sports. Uh, you know, when you're in high school, you think, I can make it. I can make it NBA, MLB. And, and some of them, I thought, you know, they probably can. I mean, they got the talent. They might be able to do it. But what I tell all of them, I don't ever crush their dreams. I simply tell them, when you make it, remember Pastor Blake. And remember that God blesses those who tithe the first 10% of their MLB contract. <laughs> I want to share in the favor. If God so favors you to get you to that point, would you remember me? Can I share in your favor? That is our hope as humans, not in this life, not only in this life, but in the life that is to come. Now, the second part of the prayer says, remember me, uh, my God, with favor. We're going to look at that with favor part because it matters how God remembers us. We don't just want God to remember us because if God remembers us for our wickedness, we are all in big trouble. I don't want God to be my enemy. I want him to remember me with favor. In fact, this is what Nehemiah uh, curses the people with. In Nehemiah 13, 29, he says, Remember them, my God, for defiling the priesthood, as well as the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. He also does this in chapter 6 with the bad guys, Tobiah and Sanballat. I'm going to miss them. I love saying their names almost every week. Nehemiah 6, 14, he says, My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat for what they have done, and also the prophetess Nodiah and other prophets who wanted to intimidate me. I don't want God to remember me for my sin. I want him to remember me with favor. It's very important how God remembers us. And then the last part of this prayer is how we know we have God's favor. Ultimately, this is how you know that you have God's favor on your life. By being able to say what Nehemiah says here. He says, remember my God with favor. That's what we all want to say, whether you're Christian or not. We want to know that God is on our side. He is my God. He's not your God. He's my God. My enemies are on the wrong side of this. Now, like I said, we might not call it God, 
And in fact, for this, we'll go to the cultural theologian, Taylor Swift. Now, I know that I've used Taylor Swift two sermons in a row, which is too, too many. Uh, but you have to forgive me. This uh, semester, my little sister is living with us, and she loves Taylor Swift, and my wife loves Taylor Swift. So there's just a lot of Taylor Swift in my house. And I, I hear these lyrics, and I think they're so dumb, but I also think the songs are so stinking catchy. So they just kind of roll around in my head, and uh, I have to get them out somehow. But I, I heard this song, and I really I like the, the, the tune of the song. The lyrics are dumb, but I like the... I like it, you know, and I just can't help it. I'm singing it in the shower sometimes, and I always sound really good in the shower. I mean, don't you guys think the shower just makes you sound great? I sound like Taylor Swift in the shower, and then I get out, and it doesn't work. But um, (laughs) this song is called Karma, and you'll notice that what she's calling karma is what you and I would call God. In fact, she calls karma God. I'll read you some of the lyrics. I won't sing it, I promise. (laughs) not in the shower. I'll read it to you. It says, because karma is my boyfriend, karma is a God. Karma is the breeze in my hair on the weekend. Karma's a relaxing thought. Aren't you envious that for you it's not? Sweet like honey, karma is a cat purring in my lap because it loves me flexing like an, and I skipped a word here, acrobat. Me and karma vibe like that. What is Taylor Swift saying? She's saying the same thing Nehemiah is saying in very different language. My God, my karma, I'm on the right side. And I have peace because I know I'm on the right side of this thing that is making all these other things come together. And just like we, Nehemiah is terrifying the people by letting them know they're on the wrong side of karma, Taylor Swift does the exact same thing. Here's the, one of the second stanzas in her song. It says, because karma, this is for those who are on the wrong side of God, the enemies of God, the enemies of karma, because karma is the thunder rattling your ground. Karma's on your scent like a bounty hunter. Karma's going to track you down, step by step from town to town, sweet like justice. Karma is a queen. Taylor Swift and Nehemiah are just alike, aren't they? (laughs) They're saying the same thing. Nehemiah is a lot closer, though, because Nehemiah actually knows who God is. When he says, my God, he he knows actual God is not karma or some invisible force. No, it, it is Yahweh. But Nehemiah still misses it a little bit. Nehemiah, if you'll remember, represents the law. Ezra represents the promise. And the law misses it in this way. Because the law thinks that you can earn, your car- you can earn karma. Good things come to you just like karma. You can earn God's favor in your life. And the truth is you cannot. And we see this in Nehemiah. He believes that our performance is what gives us favor with God. Nehemiah 13, 29. It says, I also arranged for the donation of the wood at the appointed times... And for the first fruits, or this is actually the last verse, 31, appointed me and for the first fruits, remember me, my God, with favor. Do you see why he wants God to remember him with favor? Because he did all the right things. He's the one who purified the priest. He's the one who appointed the, the offerings for the people. In fact, in some of the translations, it doesn't say, remember me, my God, with favor. It says, remember me, my God, for good. God, look at all the good I've done. Remember me for my good. Maybe some of you even in the pews today are thinking, well, yeah, that's how I earn favor with God. If I were to ask you, why does God bless you? You'd say, well, part of it's probably because I'm here. I listen to you every week. That should get me something in heaven. And I would say that should get you something in heaven, but it doesn't. (laughs) That's actually not what's going to work. This is not what makes God remember us. But Nehemiah thinks so. Nehemiah 5.19, he says this, Remember me favorably, my God. Why? For all that I have done for this people. See, friends, this is exactly why we do eulogies for people who have died. 
The reason why we put their life on a piece of paper and we read it out to everybody is because we are trying to vindicate them before God and before people. We want you to know that this person, although they were mean as snot during life, they had some redeeming qualities, and so we ought to honor them in this moment. If we were honest on eulogies, it would not be as pleasant as we often make the eulogies if we're honest. Uh, Pastor Jason, my pastor growing up uh, at Lincoln Avenue Baptist, tells the story of a time he did a funeral, and the family uh, was big Johnny Cash fans, and so they had a Johnny Cash playlist playing during the funeral. And it just so happened by God's providence that when the casket came in, Mr. Cash was singing, he went down, down, down in a burning ring of fire. (laughs) Friends, that's actually a lot more honest (laughs) than a lot of funerals. Well, we sing, I'll fly away. (laughs) Might be better to sing, they're burning like a crisp. You know, because if it's based on our own good works, we have no hope. And yet we want, we want to vindicate our loved ones in some way. It's within us. This is what we all think. We think it has something to do with our performance. Taylor Swift, one last time, I swear to you. In her song, she gets it too. She says, you terif- you're terrified to look down because if you dare, you'll see the glare. It's so corny. It's like Dr. Seuss. If you dare, you'll see the glare. But that's fine. Whatever. Of, of everyone you burn just to get there. It's coming back around, and I keep my side of the street clean. You would know what I mean. In other words, she's saying, I know it's all going to work out in my favor. You know why? Because I've been doing the right things. I've been keeping my side of the street clean. You have not. You've been doing the wrong things, and so eventually it's going to come back around and get you. This is what we think. We think favor comes to us based on performance, but it does not. There's two major problems with you trying to earn God's favor through performance. The first is that you're never going to have any peace. How could you have peace? How could you ever know that what you are doing is enough to please God? If it's based upon me, I don't know if I've done all the right things. Now, if it was as simple as just offering sacrifices, if there was a checklist, like go to church, give 10% of your money, you know, uh, honor the Sabbath day, read your Bible, well, then I might be able to know. But God says it's not just about sacrifice. Because God says, I desire mercy over sacrifice. In other words, God's looking at the inside. He's looking at my motivations. He's looking at the way I treat people internally. And how would I ever know if I had done enough? The answer is I wouldn't. And I would have no peace and I would have no confidence in the favor. And that God is truly my God and not my enemy. And and one of the ways I know when somebody believes that their favor with God is earned through performance is what they say to me when they are suffering. Because what people will say to me when they're suffering often is they'll say, Blake, I just don't understand why God would allow this to happen to me. In other words, what they're saying is, I'm doing everything correct. I'm not a perfect person, but I'm a pretty good person. And I can't imagine why God would allow this to happen to me. What they're saying is, is I've tried to earn God's favor, and I don't understand why those people who are evil are getting away with stuff that I'm not getting away with. Why? Because you think your performance has earned you something. This is not new. It happened in the days of Jesus, too. John 9, 1 and 2 says, As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And this is how we still often think, isn't it? Somebody must have messed up. Somebody must have lost God's favor somewhere in that family. Otherwise, he wouldn't be blind. But Jesus says that's not how it works. But if you believe that way, you won't have any peace. The second uh, thing that is a real problem, uh, if you're trying to earn God's favor through your performance, is simply that it is impossible. (laughs) You cannot earn God's favor through your performance. Uh, the Bible goes so far as to say in Romans 3, 10 through 12, that there is no one righteous, not one. You say, but what about Mother Teresa? No, she is just a hellion as you are in the sights of God. There is no one righteous, not 
one in the sight of God by themselves. You say, well, what about our good works? Well, the Bible would say, and this is crazy, this is part of what makes the gospel offensive, is that it says that we need forgiveness even for our good works. Our good works are polluted. You know why? Because within this evil, wicked, black heart of mine, even when I'm doing something good for somebody else, I've got dual motives. I want a pat on the back, or I want people to look at me and think I'm good, or I think I'm earning something from that person, or I'm earning something from God. I am twisted up in the head and twisted up in the heart, and you are as well. And we can be doing the right thing with the wrong motive, and God says it's still polluted. In fact, Isaiah goes as far as to say this, Isaiah 64, 6, All of us have become like something unclean, and all our righteous acts are like polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. Our righteous acts are like polluted garments. There is no hope in your performance. And what I'm afraid is that some of you are going to be like those in the parable that Jesus told, the terrifying parable, where on the day of judgment they arrive and they say, Jesus, look at all that we have done. We have prophesied in your name. We have preached in your name. We have even cast out demons in your name. And Jesus looks at them and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Why? Because you cannot earn God's favor through your performance. But here's the good news. You ready for the hope? The gospel is a message of grace. And the way that we could define grace is grace is an undeserved favor. Or if we want to get more technical, we could say grace is favor that has been accounted to you based upon what somebody else has done. There's two New Testament stories that I want to look at uh, before we close that will illustrate this for us. But Firstly, I've got to give you kind of an idea of what I mean when I say grace, because I think a lot of you think when I say grace, you're thinking mercy. Uh, if you ever played mercy uh, as a kid with your dad, uh, you know, you hold on to the hand of somebody stronger than you, and then you fight back and forth, and the way that you win the game is finally you cry like a baby and you say, mercy, and then they let go. And that's what we kind of think of God's grace being. You know, like we, we have all these sins, God could punish us with eternal damnation, but instead, we cry out to him and God says, okay, I'll give you mercy on behalf of Jesus. He'll forgive all my sins. Now, that is true. He does forgive our sins. But that is not all that grace is. Because grace actually gives us something. You can think of it this way. It'd be like if you had a $10 million debt and you couldn't pay it. Now, it didn't matter what you did. You could not pay it. And one day somebody showed up and they said, you know what? I'm going to pay your debt for you. Now, you'd be overjoyed because you don't have a $10 million debt anymore. But you know what you would also still be? You'd be broke. You'd have zero dollars in your bank account. What Jesus does is far better than that. He does come and he pays our $10 million debt, but he also puts $10 million in our account. He gives us the righteousness that he earned. Now, here's this uh, amazing verse in Luke chapter 2, verses 51 and 52. It really shows us the humanity of Jesus, and it kind of twists some of our brains. It does mine anyways, because when I think of Jesus, I think of perfect Jesus. But he, he was perfect, but he was also very human. He lived the life we were supposed to live. Verse 51, it says, Then he went down with them, and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. Talking about his parents. His mother kept all these things in her heart. Verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. Jesus didn't start with the favor of God. Jesus earned his favor with God. He increased in it over the course of his life. He kept the law perfectly righteous. He had a big bank account with God, if you will. And what does Jesus do at the end of his life? He dies. He's supposed to live. He's supposed to have the favor of God, and yet he is cursed as he hangs on a tree. Why? Because he's paying your and I's penalty. But it isn't just in there. Because Paul says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that we who are not righteous could be made righteous. 
Jesus says, come on into my bank account. You get favor that only I rightfully deserved. That's why it's called good news, not good advice. Blake, how do you know that God is your God? How do you know that you have favor with God? The only way I can say that with any shred of confidence is because I believe Jesus has allowed me to share in his favor. God doesn't look at me now. He looks at Jesus and what he has done on my behalf. Now, there's two stories that I think really play this out. And we'll close with these two stories. Uh, The first one is a very famous one uh, of two criminals who are crucified next to Jesus Christ. And we see one of the criminals understands it. One of the criminals prays a prayer of a true Christian. It's a prayer that I would want all of you to pray. The other criminal, as they're dying on the cross together, begins to mock Jesus. He says, if you're the Messiah, save us and save yourself. And the other criminal looks at him and he says, do you not have any fear of God? Do you not understand who this is? And then he says this in verse 41. We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. That's the first part of understanding the gospel is you need to understand that on your own, you are an enemy of God. There's nothing you can do to change that. That's who you are. And if you are punished, you are punished justly. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, look how similar this is to the prayer of Nehemiah. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. What's he saying? He's saying, I have no favor before the throne of God, but I'm going with this guy. We're on the same bus. (laughs) We're going to get to the father at the same time. And if I could share in a little bit of his favor, if Jesus will say, "Eh, this guy's with me, maybe I have a chance. And Jesus says, you get it. That's the only way any of us have a chance. That's the only way any of us experience paradise with Christ Jesus. It's because it is with Christ Jesus and not apart from him. Now, there's another story where we get actually a glimpse into the throne room of God. And if the band wants to go ahead and come up, they can. I'm getting close to finishing. Uh, the, the very first martyr, the very first person to die for his faith in uh, the, the, the Christian way that we know of anyways is Stephen. And uh, Acts seven fifty four through 56 gives us very interesting insight into this because it shows us what Stephen saw. It says, when they heard these things, that the Jews that were killing Stephen... They were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What does he see? He looks up and he sees Jesus right next to God. Now, when we, uh, because we're Americans, uh, we don't celebrate the king uh, being enthroned uh, as the Brits did. Uh, we, we, we think, you know, George Washington knew what he was doing, and so we don't want to have any monarchs. But for most of history, the throne room was also the courtroom. That was the place in which justice was given out. And what does he see when he looks into the God's courtroom? He sees Jesus not sitting, but standing. And this is really important, because every other time we see Jesus, he is seated at the right hand. What does that mean? That means he's finished. But when he's here, he is standing And what Jesus is doing is he's doing what any lawyer does when they're in the courtroom. They stand and they plead the case on behalf of their client. What is Jesus doing? He is pleading the case of Stephen before God. Why is Stephen able to experience the glory of God? Because Jesus is pleading his case. Uh, F.F. Bruce, who's an old pastor, says this. He says, while Stephen was confessing Christ before men, Christ was confessing Stephen before God. And friends, you know what the good news about that is? Is that's true for all of us as well. 
as I stand here confessing God and Christ before you, Christ stands right now, ever interceding on my behalf before the throne room of God, confessing me as his own. 1 John 2.1 says this, My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have a lawyer. We have a representative with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. This is our hope. Not only that God would be my God, but that I could call God my Father. And the same is true for you. I'll end with this illustration that I've used before, but I think it's a great illustration, especially as we come to the summertime. It's, uh, it's time for sprint car racing for me, and I'm going to go to the Knoxville Nationals in August. And what I love about the Knoxville Nationals is the amount of access I get, because I go with my grandpa, Jim. Jim has been an official uh, for the Knoxville Nationals for, like, I think when they had horses racing around there. He was, I'm just kidding, he's not that old. But uh, he, he's been an official for a long time. He's incurred a lot of favor. And what's really cool is I get in his little golf cart, and we get to go where none of the fans get to go. We get to go through the gate and down into the infield. And there's always a big scary bouncer guy standing there. And when people try to walk through without the proper credentials, he, like, stiff arms them and pushes them back. But when I'm with my grandpa, Jim, I'm not even afraid of that guy. I know he's going to say, hey, Jim, and we're going to go right through into the infield. Friends, that's a, the same thing that Jesus Christ is doing for us. The reason why we are confident is not because of what we did or did not do this last week. It's because we're in the golf cart with Jesus Christ, and we share in the favor that he has rightfully earned for us. And if you're a Christian here today, I am authorized by God to tell you that you are forgiven. You are counted righteous. It's already done because of what Jesus has done for you. Let me pray for you. Jesus Thank you so much for what you've done for us. God, we have no hope apart from Jesus. I pray that today in this room, those who came in here uncertain, those doubting, those weighed down by the condemnation that they feel from their sins, would turn to you and remember that their favor is earned totally in the righteous work of Jesus alone. And maybe for the first time today, somebody would say, I, I quit trying. I quit trying to measure up to the standard that I can't measure up to. And I trust wholly upon the grace of Jesus Christ. And friends, if you would, take about 10 seconds with your eyes closed and head bowed and just say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message?